KISU City Club is presented by the Idaho Humanities Council, enhancing the quality of life in Idaho by broadening public awareness, appreciation, and understanding of literature, history, philosophy, and other humanities disciplines. More details are on the web at idahohumanities.org. This evening on the City Club of Idaho Falls rebroadcast, we feature remarks by Mark Johnson, held April 25, 2019. Greetings to everybody, and let me extend special greetings to Representative Wendy Horman and Congressman Mike Simpson. It's nice to have you both here today representing the class of the political class. Uh, this is a time uh, for all of us to, to consider in a very serious way a very serious subject, and that is the dysfunctionality of the United States Senate. Uh, and by the way, it's the dysfunctionality of the U.S. Senate, not the U.S. House that we're talking about today. Uh, a problem, a problem uh, described by the inability of our Senate to uh, adequately address the major issues and challenges confronting America and to reach compromise. In order for us to better understand this, this very, very important subject, we have today uh, here at the City Club of Idaho Falls a very well-known uh, analyst of politics, a man steeped in American history and politics, and certainly a figure familiar to Idahoans for his long career in television and radio broadcasting here in Idaho, uh, and, and of course for his role as the top aide to the longest serving governor in the history of Idaho, Cecil Andrus. Mark Johnson comes to us today by way of Manzanita, Oregon, a place to which he and his wife uh, recently moved uh, so that they could escape uh, life in the big city known as Boise, Idaho. And they live in a beautiful spot on the rural uh, coast there in, in Oregon. Uh, Mark Johnson is an old friend and colleague, uh, a man who is steeped not only in politics but also history and literature. He is a person whose writings have been published in the New York Times, the California Journal of Public Policy and Politics, and most recently, Montana, the Western History Magazine. Many of you have already had the opportunity to buy his current book, which you see on the screen behind me, Political Hellraiser, The Life and Times of Burton K. Wheeler of Montana. I, I urge you to pick up this book. Pick it up because you'll feel the real intellectual heft of it. Uh, the small print there is uh, by virtue of the fact that the publisher didn't want a 700-page book. Um, and I think you can get a special glass along with the book so you can read that small print. The size of this book reminds us that not only do we have much to learn about this very controversial uh, U.S. Senator from Montana, but in fact it can serve as a doorstop, and indeed it will be big enough to serve as a weapon. And when you, when you think about a book as a weapon, we go well beyond the old refrain that politics is knowledge and that knowledge is power, because you might remember that several centuries ago, a young student at Oxford University in England was sitting under a tree reading Aristotle's Ethics, which at that point in time in the 15th century uh, was about this big. He was attacked by a wild boar 
and he used Aristotle's book to fend off the boar and to save himself, and that's why Oxford has each year a famous boar's head dinner to celebrate knowledge as power. And I think soon we'll probably be having a Mark Johnson luncheon uh, where we honor him by uh, recalling this great book about Burton Wheeler. If you don't know much about Burton Wheeler, and you're going to learn more today, by the way, he was a figure who brought a very well-known and controversial investigation into the U.S. Department of Justice in the 1920s. Yes, we're talking about the 1920s. And uh, he also ran as vice president on the progressive ticket in 1924. Uh, he was knee-deep in all of the New, New Deal legislation in the 1930s during the Franklin uh, D. Roosevelt era. And he also played a key role in helping to thwart FDR's court packing plan in 1936 and 37. Mark Johnson brings to us not only a wealth of knowledge about politics and history, but he brings a particular perspective that people not only in Idaho have appreciated for many, many years, but his colleagues around the country have embraced uh, his services and his knowledge on many levels. Not only did he serve a long stretch as chair of the Idaho Humanities Council, but also chair of the Federation of State Humanities Councils, the National Endowment for the Humanities grabbed him and, and placed him in service uh, to that wonderful organization to serve as a site visitor of state humanities councils across the country. And he and his wife, Pat, have only recently uh, moved to Oregon, but already his services are in demand, and he serves as chair of the board for the North Tillamook Library Friends of that very large organization. Many of you are familiar with Mark's uh, weekly podcast and blog, Many Things Considered. Ladies and gentlemen, it's a great pleasure today to invite an old friend and colleague, Mark Johnson. Adler's been waiting 25 years to poke that kind of stick at me. And to put the frosting on a little heavy, uh, thank you, very kind. What a great pleasure it is to be in Idaho Falls. I was thinking as I was driving down here this morning from uh, Ketchum, coming across the high desert, past the site, that uh, I believe in the 40 plus years that I've been coming to Idaho Falls, this may be the only time I've actually seen a room from this perspective. I'm usually out there looking at the speaker, so this is a whole new orientation for me, and I'll, uh, I'll be uh, very appreciative of uh, the opportunity to sp spend a few minutes with you today. In 1928, Montana Democratic Senator Burton K. Wheeler was running for re-election. He had first been elected in 1922, and he told his constituents in 1928 that uh, he, he said something that I don't believe I've ever heard another politician say. He said he'd been in Washington, D.C. long enough, six years now, that he'd made a study of major national and international problems, and if the voters of Montana were good enough to send him back to the Senate, he was determined to concentrate on those issues. And then he said something truly remarkable for any politician. 
He said, I'm done being the errand boy for Montana. That's the term he used, errand boy. If voters wanted an errand boy, he said, they could best vote for someone else because Wheeler didn't see the job of being a United States senator as simply one of bringing home the bacon to Montana. His job, he thought, was uh, bigger than that. Of course, he never really stopped uh, bringing home the bacon. Uh, he probably, certainly more than anyone else, is responsible for the construction of Fort Peck Dam on the headwaters of the Missouri in extreme northeastern Montana. He had his hands in, any, in all, all number of water and irrigation projects in Montana in the 20s and 30s. Uh, he single-handedly uh, managed the passage of what uh, was called at the time the Indian New Deal, the Indian Reorganization Act of 1934 that fundamentally rewrote the way the federal government interacts with Native American tribes. So he was constantly involved in Montana issues, but he saw himself in the Senate as being something uh, bigger than just the senator from Montana. A senator, in Burton Wheeler's view, had national responsibilities and a particular responsibility to the institution of the Senate, one branch of a co-equal branch of government, and a duty as a senator to serve as a check, as the Constitution prescribes, on the executive branch, a check on the president. And never was it more important, uh, Wheeler thought, than when the president was of your own party. I'm reminded of the words of uh, Alexander Hamilton, he of the famous Broadway musical. <laughs> we should seek of our leaders, Hamilton wrote, people preeminent for ability and virtue. We should avoid characters with talent for low intrigue and the little arts of popularity. Shun circumstances of tumult and disorder and remain on guard against the desire in foreign powers to gain an improper ascendant into our councils, particularly, Hamilton said, by raising a creature of their own to the chief magistrate of the Union. And Congress, and in particular the Senate, has a preeminent role in the checking of the executive branch. Senator Wheeler was a fascinating character, and I was drawn to him for a lot of reasons, uh, primarily uh, because of his lifelong stand in favor of um, civil liberties, his defense of a free judiciary, an independent judiciary, uh, and also I come to, have come to admire his great political independence. Uh, the great Montana Senator Mike Mansfield, something of a contemporary of Wheeler's, said that uh, Wheeler was mostly a Democrat, but he was always an independent. He was also willing to put the country ahead of his own party, as he did on numerous occasions. Such were the qualities that attracted me to spend a lot of time the last few years researching and writing about his uh, admittedly often tumultuous career. And I want to relate a couple of Wheeler stories today that I think you don't have to think too, too deeply about to understand the relevance to what is happening in our politics today. But I also want to talk, as I, as I have ask you to go back in time with me to the Senate of the 20s, 30s, and 40s, um, about the more recent United States Senate. And, and I'm happy to say that I'm working now on a book for the same publisher, University of Oklahoma Press, on a more contemporary history uh, subject of the Senate, 
and I'll touch on that uh, briefly today. It offers a theory, every historian has to have a theory, uh, it offers a theory about what has happened to our politics since the pivotal election of 1980 when Ronald Reagan was elected president, ushering in a, a, a new Republican era in American politics. The Senate in 1980 flip, flipped from Democratic control to Republican control uh, for the first time in a quarter century. I think that 1980 election, including the election that took place here in Idaho, uh, is really pivotal to understanding our politics today, and I'll touch on that uh, briefly. I just want to pause long enough to thank Jerry and my old friend Tim Hopkins for uh, paving the way for me to be here today. A uh, really great pleasure. Uh, I'm particularly uh, proud of the fact that the Humanities Council uh, helps the City Club of Idaho Falls uh, conduct these forums. Uh, City Club is long, uh, the Humanities Council has long had a warm place in my heart. I'm delighted to see uh, my old friend and occasional adversary Mike Simpson here today. Um, I should actually give Mike the, uh, the podium today because he made some real news on Tuesday at the Andrus Center Policy Conference in Boise. You probably read about it in the papers. Um, it's a great honor to be uh, with Mike on Tuesday, and it's uh, particularly uh, important to me that he's here today, and I appreciate that very much, and you too, Kathy. And Representative Horman, who I had not met before, but have uh, been following her rapid rise in state politics as well. So thanks to all of you for having me here today. This picture was made near as I can tell in 1924. That's Senator Wheeler, the taller gent on the right-hand side of the frame, the Democrat. On the left is Idaho Republican Senator William Bora. Uh, truth be told, they were more politically speaking on the left than they were at the on the right in this period in American history. Each was what one historian has called a peace progressive, opposed to an interventionist foreign policy. They were anti-imperialists, severe critics of monopoly and a concentration of power, whether that power was on Wall Street in the form of big banks, big insurance companies, big utility companies, or indeed whether the power was concentrated in the Oval Office of the White House. Bora and Wheeler became fast friends in 1924. Wheeler comes to the Senate officially in 1923. Bora had been there uh, for some years, was by this point chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and a very established Senate figure and a very well-respected Senate figure across the political aisle. In 1924, and David alluded to the fact that Wheeler went to the Senate determined to investigate what he thought was corruption at the U.S. Department of Justice. He eventually convinced the United States Senate to form a bipartisan commission committee to investigate the Attorney General at the time, Harry Doherty, and others uh, involved with what they believed was uh, widespread corruption at the Justice Department. Some things don't change, apparently. In the course of examining uh, the Justice Department activities and those of the Attorney General, uh, Wheeler, uh, there's no nice way to, f to say it, and I titled the chapter in the book, The Frame Up, he was accused of misusing his office, uh, improperly benefiting from his role as a United States Senator in order to enrich himself by service to one of his former law clients in Montana. Um, the Attorney General, Doherty, dispatched uh, agents of the Bureau of Investigation, we now know that as the FBI, to Montana 
to collect, as he said, dirt on Wheeler. Uh, he was indicted by a grand jury in Great Falls, Montana in 1924. In the midst of his investigation of the Attorney General, the Justice Department indicts him. Uh, he is subsequently uh, found not guilty by a jury of his peers in Montana. Uh, he joked years later, Wheeler joked years later, that the uh, jury took two votes, uh, one to acquit him, the second to stay in session long enough that the government had to buy their dinner. But he also insisted that the Senate investigate these charges of corruption against him, and Bora was detailed to lead that investigation, which he conducted over a period of several months. He wanted access to the grand jury testimony in Great Falls and uh, sought that testimony until he realized that he was not going to get it when the judge informed the senator that uh, well, there really wasn't a written record of the grand jury proceedings. Uh, so he had to stumble his way to calling witnesses and uh, examining the paper trail before exonerate, finding uh, and delivering to the Senate a report that completely exonerated Wheeler. The frame-up of the Montana senator, I think, was one of the great uh, politically motivated hit jobs in American history. And Bora uh, saw through it, and skilled uh, trial attorney that he was, investigated the whole thing, and eventually agreed that, indeed, Wheeler had been framed. Such are the makings of an enduring political friendship. In the 1920s, both men opposed the foreign policy of Republican President Calvin Coolidge. And you might be surprised, but yes, Calvin Coolidge actually did have a foreign policy. Uh, particularly, they opposed the, the dispatch of United States Marine troops, um, United States Marines to Nicaragua, largely to protect U.S. economic interests there. Bora supported Wheeler's successful efforts to break up the massive utility holding companies that controlled almost all of the energy production and distribution in the United States prior to 1935. And each was appalled by President Franklin Roosevelt's plan, as David mentioned, to pack the Supreme Court in 1937. Let me just digress to tell one quick Wheeler-Bora-Idaho uh, story. 1936, Bora is standing for re-election against a very popular Democratic governor, C. Ben Ross, a three-term a three Idaho governor at that point, a supporter of the New Deal, although Bora had been generally a supporter of the New Deal, Roosevelt's legislative program. Uh, the Democratic National Committee lets it be known that they're going to put all kinds of resources into Idaho in 1936 in order to try to defeat the Republican incumbent, Senator Bora. Wheeler gets word of this, uh, summons reporters to his office in Washington, D.C., and says, I want to send a message to the Democratic National Committee and the White House that if they try to defeat Senator Bora, I will personally go to Idaho and campaign for him. So imagine a Democratic senator today making that kind of promise to a Republican colleague. Bora did survive that uh, re-election rather easily against uh, Ben Ross, and Franklin Roosevelt, of course, carried Idaho overwhelmingly in 1936. The story of Roosevelt's plan to enlarge the Supreme Court has uh, in many ways been forgotten in our American history, but it seems remarkably relevant to the ongoing debate in the country right now about the partisan makeup of the court, and particularly the, the Senate's willingness or unwillingness to encourage and protect judicial independence on the court. 
So just for a moment with me, go back to February of 1937. Franklin Roosevelt has just won a stunning re-election victory, one of the great landslides in American presidential uh, politics. He won all but two states in 1936, Roosevelt, uh, Maine and Vermont. There's the old, uh, prior to 1936, there was the old saying in American politics that Maine was the presidential bellwether. So goes Maine, so goes the nation. After 1936, uh, Jim Farley, who was Roosevelt's postmaster general and the chairman of the Democratic National Committee, said we have to amend that. After this election, it'll be so goes Maine, so goes Vermont. <laughs> the syndicated columnist uh, Dorothy Thompson uh, wrote a very popular syndicated political column, and she said if the election had gone on two more weeks, Roosevelt would have carried Canada. <laughs> so it's just a complete uh, political wipeout. Set, uh, Roosevelt brings into office uh, overwhelming majorities in both the House and the Senate, 76 Democrats in the United States Senate as the Congress convenes early in 1937. Uh, three or four additional senators were of uh, either progressive or democratic farmer labor orientation from the upper Midwest. They typically voted with Democrats. So you, you, you roughly have 80 members of the Senate who are supportive of uh, Roosevelt's policies. Same kind of percentage in the House of Representatives. So with this stunning reelection victory in his pocket and an overwhelmingly democratic majority in the Congress, Roosevelt decides after thinking about it for some time, that he's going to get even with the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court that has overturned a number of New Deal initiatives uh, prior to 1936. He is concerned that uh, the recently passed uh, Social Security legislation is going to go before the court and might be turned down. He's worried about his next wave of legislative uh, efforts and how the court will treat them, particularly in light of the fact that the court had roughed up a number of New Deal uh, initiatives prior to 1936. So he decides, with no consultation with Congress whatsoever, uh, basically relying upon the advice of his attorney general, a man by the name of Homer Cummings, and a handful of trusted aides, that he's going to remake the Supreme Court. And not only that, he's going to propose creating a vast number of new federal judges at, in lower courts all over the country. So in one fell swoop, Roosevelt's proposal calls for adding six new members to the Supreme Court. Take the court from nine members to 15 and create a whole slew of new federal judges in every state across the country. <clears throat> Wheeler um, had been critical of the Supreme Court, had been critical of the court's position on a number of New Deal issues, but this was just a bridge too far for him. The court was uh, regularly described in this period as nine old men. Uh, more than, the average age was more than 70 on the court. And Roosevelt's rationale for enlarging the court was that these nine old men were just not up to the task of keeping up to, up to speed with their work, that they needed uh, additional help. And that's the rationale that he presented to the country in February 1937 uh, to enlarge the S Supreme Court. As I mentioned, FDR had every reason to believe his plan, particularly with those large Democratic majorities, would be quickly and decisively approved. He badly, badly miscalculated. 
This is a cartoon from that period showing the six new justices all looking exactly like Franklin Roosevelt. <laughs> Everybody knows, of course, that Roosevelt gets to make these appointments and he's going to appoint liberal justices who are sympathetic to the New Deal uh, and that in, in essence the president in one fell swoop is going to dramatically change uh, the makeup of the court. Wheeler wasn't the first Democrat to come out in opposition to what quickly became known as the court packing plan, but he was the most prominent Democrat to do so. And he immediately became the acknowledged leader of a bipartisan group in the Senate that was determined to resist what these senators saw as a raw presidential power grab. Bora, meanwhile, is the ranking Republican on the Senate Judiciary Committee, the committee that's going to consider Roosevelt's proposal. And daily, he begins to meet with Wheeler and plot strategy. While the Montana senator is out on the stump publicly speaking out against Roosevelt's plan, criticizing the president of his own party, and I, when I underscore, Wheeler just didn't oppose the president. He is actively engaged in leading the coalition to defeat the president's plan. So the two created quite a remarkable bipartisan team. Roosevelt's plan, strictly speaking, was not unconstitutional. There's nothing in the Constitution that prescribes uh, the size of the Supreme Court. And in fact, the court has fluctuated in size uh, throughout our history uh, up until uh, 1869 when the, the current nine members uh, were decided upon. So not strictly speaking unconstitutional, but in the eyes of Wheeler and Bora, this proposal violates the constitutional notion of separation of powers. You're going, to get, you're going to make the executive branch uh, dominant over the judicial branch here with this kind of legislation. Wheeler said if FDR succeeded, the court would become subservient to the president with newly appointed judges assuming office not to exercise independent judgment, but to carry out the, wis the, the wishes of the president of the United States. The debate went on uh, during the very hot summer of 1937. Uh, there was a little bit of a revolt in the Senate at one point when it uh, looked as though the Senate might not recess long enough to allow senators to attend the Major League All-Star Game, which was held in Washington, D.C. that summer. Finally, at the last minute, the Senate Majority Leader relented. Uh, most of the Senate went to the baseball game and saw Lou Gehrig become the most valuable player and hit a home run. Wheeler's leadership of these anti-court packing forces did not play well in Montana. I mentioned earlier, uh, Roosevelt had won a smashing re-election in Montana in 1936. And back home, fellow Democrats are berating their senator for not supporting the president. A Democratic congressman in Montana was promising to run against Wheeler. His allies in organized labor strongly supported Roosevelt and went right down the line with him on this court packing plan. But still on this matter of high principle, an independent judiciary, and a separation of powers, uh, Wheeler never wavered, took on all the critics, explained his position to anyone who would listen. When the political clouds eventually lifted, this picture, by the way, is Wheeler just moments before he presents testimony to the Senate Judiciary Committee in the summer of 1937. He whipped out of his pocket a uh, letter that he had uh, procured from the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, Charles Evans Hughes, a man who Wheeler had opposed when he was uh, nominated and eventually confirmed to be Chief Justice, but politics 
sometimes does make strange bedfellows. So you have this conservative Republican chief justice working with this progressive uh, Democratic senator to thwart uh, the president's plan. The Judiciary Committee uh, reported out a scathing report about Roosevelt's plan, still considered by many historians to be the single most critical uh, committee report ever produced on a presidential initiative. Bora wrote most of it. And eventually, by a vote of 70 to 20, um, the bill uh, was taken off the Senate floor without a vote and returned to the Judiciary Committee where it died. It was a stunning rebuke to a president who just a few months earlier had won this massive reelection, and up to that point in time had almost completely had his way with the Congress. Never again after 1937 would Franklin Roosevelt command a working majority in the Congress for his domestic agenda. Wheeler suffered some short-term political pushback in Montana, but he was reelected uh, easily in 1940, with many constituents saying that they wished that he had supported the president, but they admired his independence. There are, of course, other examples of bipartisanship reigning in the Senate when big national issues are at stake and examples where presidents, uh, senators do put their country before their party. Civil rights legislation, for example, would not have passed in the 1960s without Northern Democrats coming together with Republicans. Republican senators, including Everett Dirksen, who's in the middle of this picture next to Hubert Humphrey, the Democratic and Republican leaders of the civil rights movement uh, in the Senate in 1964, Republican senators were some of the most forceful uh, opponents in the 1950s of Senator Joseph McCarthy's communist witch hunts of the State Department and the federal government. The Senate conducted bipartisan investigations that exposed the Teapot Dome scandal, and without persistence of a bipartisan group of senators on the Watergate Committee, Richard Nixon might never have released the White House tape recordings that eventually doomed his presidency. Republican senators joined with Democrats, Idaho's Frank Church included, to press for an end to the Vietnam War. Yet something seems to have happened to the Senate as an institution, and I think many Americans would agree with me in thinking that the Senate has kind of lost its way in the last decade or so. Another great Montana senator who I've already mentioned, Mike Mansfield, who still holds the distinction of being the longest serving majority leader in Senate history, made some famous observations uh, about the Senate some years ago. Mansfield said, and I quote him, in the end, it is not the senators as individuals who are fundamentally important. In the end, it is the institution of the Senate. It is the Senate itself as one of the foundations of the Republic. It is the Senate as one of the rocks of the Republic. So what's happened to the Senate? This is my theory. You may agree, you may not. I hope you'll buy the next book. <laughs> my theory um, doesn't completely explain a complex set of factors, but it does get to the heart of what I think has caused some of our extreme polarization. My research on the Senate has taken me from Burton K. Wheeler's Senate of the 1920s, 30s, and 40s to Mike Mansfield's Senate of the 1960s and 70s, to Howard Baker's Senate, to Bob Dole's Senate, and yes, to Mitch McConnell's Senate today. I think the great change that has virtually destroyed bipartisanship on big issues 
and indeed has served to hasten the demise of the Senate as a deliberative, uh, positive institution in our politics, can be traced to the election of 1980. In particular, a handful of Senate elections in that year, a pivotal year in American history. And that's what I'm working on uh, in the next book. Some of you will remember that 1980 election in Idaho, Frank Church seeking a fifth term in the Senate, 24-year veteran, and Steve Sims, congressman from the first district of Idaho. It was a hard-fought, often bitter campaign that Sims ultimately won by a little over 4,000 votes. It's difficult, uh, perhaps even impossible, to see history being made in real time, but 1980 was a historic election with, I think, long-lasting impacts. One of my uh, historian heroes is Robert Dalek, presidential historian who's written about John Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson, among others, Richard Nixon. Um, he gave me a nice blurb for my book, which I'm proud of. Bob Dalek says sometimes it takes 40 or 50 years to see the events of our history in some kind of context. And I think we're at the point now where we can maybe see that 1980 election in some greater context. It starts with a court case, actually, in 1975, the so-called Buckley case, that opened the doors to something, that are call, that something called independent expenditure campaigns. A political action committee was authorized by the Buckley decision to raise and spend unlimited amounts of money supporting or opposing a candidate, so long as that political action committee did not coordinate its efforts with a candidate or a campaign. The 1980 campaign was the first of these independent expenditure efforts conducted on a broad scale, where efforts were used to defeat Frank Church in Idaho, among others. By 1980, the so-called New Right had perfected direct mail solicitation and attacks. And one PAC in particular, the National Conservative Political Action Committee, NICPAC for short, raised millions of dollars by direct mail and spend it on two things, primarily to elect Ronald Reagan president and to defeat four incumbent Democratic senators. Now, don't get me wrong. Our politics have always been rough and tumble. Uh, John Adams and, uh, and Thomas Jefferson, as David well knows, would attest to that. Uh, so partisan in those days that uh, candidates or political figures owned their own newspapers so that they could put their own spin on what was happening. Our campaigns have always been rough and tumble. But in 1980, Nick Pack perfected the negative campaign for modern American politics, I believe. And the issues weren't strictly about subjects unique to Idaho or Indiana or South Dakota or Iowa, where they concentrated their efforts. They were national. They intended to nationalize each one of these Senate elections using very emotional social issues driven by a language that inspired, in some cases, fear, and in all cases, I think, resentment. There were attacks on elites, never fully described as to what an elite is, uh, but these words and issues by their very nature were designed to divide, to sow distrust, and to deepen partisanship. And this is a direct quote from Terry Dolan, who was the executive director of NICPAC in that 1980 cycle. He says, the shriller you are, the easier it is to raise money. 
I would submit that Nick Pack's tactics worked perhaps even better than its architects, fellows like Terry Dolan, could ever have hoped. This is a, a screenshot, if you will, of an ad against Senator Church that year. These were relentlessly negative attacks on his record, uh, essentially on, uh, on his character, uh, on his integrity, whether he was really being true to Idaho. Another one of the founders of NICPAC, by the way, and the, the organization was founded in 1975, but really came on the scene in the 1978 midterms and really reached the apex of its, uh, its power in 1980. One of the other founders of NICPAC was a guy named Roger Stone. On another occasion, Dolan told a reporter, and this was during the 1980 campaign, he was remarkably candid about what they were doing. He said, groups like ours can be very dangerous. We could be literally lying through our teeth. On yet another occasion, he said that the relentlessly negative attacks would make certain that voters, even if they couldn't remember specific charges against Frank Church or George McGovern or Birch Bayh, would remember on election day that they really disliked them. So liberal icons like Bayh, like McGovern in South Dakota, Senator Bayh just recently passed away. By the way, uh, historians say of Birch Bayh that he wrote more of the Constitution than any person that was not a member of the founding generation. He's responsible for writing uh, the 25th Amendment about presidential succession. Uh, he authored the amendment to allow 18-year-olds to vote. Uh, he was the architect of Title IX, which equalized or came close to equalizing uh, opportunities for women in higher education. And we know how that played out in terms of women's athletics at the college level. John Culver from Iowa was another of the targets of Nick Pack in 1980, and of course, Senator Church uh, in Idaho. After 1980, the author Iris Shapiro has written in what is a really illuminating book called The Last Great Senate, the Senate seemed like it would never be quite the same again. Every Senate race would now be a national race, more heavily than ever influenced by out-of-state money, third-party attacks, brutal negativity, and almost inevitably, it seems, increasing partisan polarization. So think for a moment about the Senate of the 1960s, Think about the Senate of the 1960s and 70s, before the polarizing election of 1980. Civil rights legislation was passed on a bipartisan basis. The modern structure of environmental law, regardless of what you might think about the Clean Water Act or the Clean Air Act, was passed on a bipartisan basis, signed by a Republican president. The Senate investigated Watergate. Constitutional amendments were passed to clarify presidential succession, give 18-year-olds the right to vote, establish a mechanism to remove a president uh, who was found to be incapacitated. As I mentioned, Title IX, bringing equality to women in college admissions and athletics was passed. The Wilderness Act was passed. Public broadcasting was created. Medicare was created. And it was all done on a bipartisan basis. Increasingly, after 1980, it was no longer possible to have a principled liberal-conservative disagreement about public policy. One side had to be demonized, and usually, uh, and, and the appeals were made more and more to the most loyal base voters of each party, uh, always in a way to kind of further the idea of division and exploit that division. 
If your side is winning in this kind of environment, or you think this kind of approach to a politics is uh, a way to have your point of view prevail, then you might be happy with these developments in the post-1980 world. Uh, if, however, you think that a successful democracy requires other approaches, bipartisanship, uh, compromise, not on principle, but on the details of how progress is made, um, if you believe that there is something noble in politics about accepting the legitimacy of your opponent and not considering them your enemy, then you might lament passing of the Senate that I alluded to in the 1930s when bipartisanship was able to stop a president from vastly overreaching in remaking the federal judiciary. And you might lament the fact that we had a Senate that worked that way largely in the 1970s prior to that 1980 election. So I think I've exhausted my time. I'd be delighted to respond to some questions, David. Let me just say one thing before we begin the questions. And I, I don't say this uh, to curry favor with him because I don't think I could anyway, but um, Mike Simpson is in many ways a model of the kind of legislator that I think I am trying to shine a spotlight on here today. Um, Mike and I come from different political faiths. Uh, he was the Speaker of the House when I worked uh, for Governor Andrus. We certainly had uh, some battle royals about various things back in those days, but never ever a sense that uh, he was attempting to delegitimize the opposition or that he was not willing to sit down, talk through a difficult problem, and find a solution that maybe brought both sides together, much as he did with the Boulder White Clouds Wilderness, much as he's done on so many issues. And now as he uh, heroically, I think, stepping forward uh, to draw attention to the real serious problems of energy and salmon and agriculture and transportation in the Pacific Northwest, that's the model of the kind of political leadership we ought to uh, wish we had more of. Thank you, Mike. Here, here. Here, here. Thank you. Mark, thanks for those. He's already bought the book, too, so I... <laughs> right. But there are still holidays to come, and I'm sure he'll need additional gifts. Mark, your remarks are fascinating, insightful, uh, just the sort of inquiry that we've expected uh, to come from your, uh, your writing and your speeches. Let's, we have a number of very good questions that I know you'll appreciate addressing. Let's begin with a couple of historical questions. Be begin with the easy ones, please. The high softball questions. <laughs> so uh, one of our audience members wonders, what became of the relationship between Senator Wheeler and President Roosevelt after Senator Wheeler became one of the most outspoken critics of his, of his program? Uh, they had no relationship, is the short answer, <laughs> after 1937. Um, and to provide some political context here briefly, uh, I argue in my book that Montana, not a, a great geographic state, but not a great population state in terms of uh, impact on national politics, 
But in that 1932 election, Montana played a, a really outside role, outsized role in American presidential politics. Wheeler was uh, an intimate of the campaign. He campaigned all across the Western United States for, for Ro the Roosevelt ticket. Uh, so did his seatmate, uh, Senator Tom Walsh, uh, another famous Montana senator, the investigator of the Teapot Dome scandal. Uh, so Montana plays a real outsized role in presidential politics. Wheeler, for example, convinces Huey Long, the senator from Louisiana, powerful Southern uh, Democrat, uh, to throw in with the Roosevelt forces. Long was very skeptical of Roosevelt, wasn't sure that he was quite radical enough uh, for Huey's taste. But Wheeler brought him along. And uh, politics and person, uh, you know, personality being what they are, he thinks he's going to have a real place at the table in the Roosevelt administration. He's going to be invited into the councils uh, of uh, policymaking. And he is almost immediately disappointed in that regard. They did cooperate on a number of things. I mentioned the Indian Reorganization Act, the Public Utilities Holding Company Act, massive legislation that passed in 1935. But that 1937 uh, break over the Supreme Court was really uh, fatal to their uh, presidential or, or their personal relationship. So much so that just imagine if you can for a moment, Roosevelt, after he loses this big fight uh, in the Senate over his court bill, decides he has to get out in the country and sort of show the flag, reassure people that he's not gone off the deep end because this, this debate over the court had absolutely dominated politics for a year. So he makes a big trip throughout the West and crosses Montana going from uh, west to east along High Line, the Great Northern Railroad Line. And he pointedly does not invite Wheeler to accompany him. All of the other Democratic office holders in Montana are on the train as it makes its way across Montana and stops in various places. He never once mentions Wheeler by name. So it's be like Donald Trump going to Montana today and not mentioning Steve Daines. It's just, you know, it's not, not conceivable. So that's how badly their relationship was uh, tarnished. Thank you. One of our, our members here in the audience wonders, uh, what marked the end of Senator Wheeler's political career and uh, what was the end of his life like? He, the, uh, my theory is that the end of his political career, uh, the seeds of it were sown in this court uh, debate. Uh, he never really recovered his footing with sort of the rank-and-file Montana Democratic Party. Even though he succeeded in creating a kind of a bipartisan machine of sorts in Montana, working closely with the Republican governor in the early 40s, but by, uh, by 1946, when he's running for what would have been his fifth term, he's very much out of sorts with his, with his base. Uh, very pro-FDR, pro-Harry Truman uh, Democratic Party in Montana at that point. And he's basically seen as being out of touch with these folks. And you have to say he uh, enor engendered enormous controversy right before World War II, particularly during 1941, when he is one of the unreconstructed isolationists opposed to U.S. military involvement in any way, shape, or form in the worsening war in Europe. So again, he's very much at odds with Franklin Roosevelt's foreign policy in this period, and it finally caught up with him, I think, in 1946. Veterans are coming home uh, after the war, and uh, he, he, he loses the Democratic primary. Um, he remains in Washington, D.C. They never go home to Pocatello, they say, right? Um, he remained in Washington, D.C., established a law practice with one of his sons, very successful law practice, uh, 
practicing in telecommunications policy, transportation issues, energy policy. Uh, he, he and his son were involved in the copyright or copyright uh, litigation involving the rights to development of color television, for example. So he made a nice family fortune as a lawyer in Washington, D.C. Lived to be 93 years old. Great. Thank you very much. Your analysis has struck a chord with our audience. Uh, let's begin with some fun questions about uh, the roots of this problem and divisiveness in the Senate. Uh, one of our writers wonders uh, if you can trace back uh, the divisiveness of the Senate to uh, the changes with respect to PACs. Is it time then to change the rules and the laws governing uh, political campaign contributions? Yes. <laughs> okay, good. We, we would invite you to expand. Thank you. You know, I don't know, uh, I'm no expert in campaign finance uh, law, and I've tried to make myself a student of the effects of this Buckley versus Vallejo decision, which you, I'm sure you know very well, David, 1975, uh, which uh, started to take the sideboards off of uh, limitations on expenditures and limitations on donations. Um, somehow, it seems to me, um, there is a pernicious influence of money in politics. Uh, and I think it is particularly, uh, it particularly comes to the, to the surface in the Senate, where, um, and Mike may disagree with me, but house races are generally not national races. Not, you know, we're, people in North Carolina are not on the edge of their seat wondering how things are going to turn out in the second district of Idaho. That's not the case with the Senate. Uh, each Senate race now is a national race. Look at, look at uh, the last election cycle when you had uh, an immense amount of uh, exposure and concentration on what was going on in North Dakota. Would Republicans pick up a Senate seat in North Dakota? Of course, it's important because of the balance of partisan balance in the Senate. But those races have truly become national races now, where money floods in from people all over the country uh, thinking that they have some kind of an investment in the election of a senator in a, in a particular state. So somehow, some way, and uh, the Supreme Court with Citizens United and other uh, rulings has made it difficult to put limits on uh, campaign finance. Somebody asked me the other day, what would it cost what would it take to bring about some realignment of, you know, some constraints on the spending? Uh, I think it'll take a, a scandal that both parties finally reach uh, the breaking point, thinking that there's just uh, too much opportunity for mischief here with too much money, too much black, dark money, too much uncontrolled money in our politics. I don't have a good answer for how you fix it, uh, but I do think that it operates at some detriment to our democracy. Thank you. Many Americans join you in bemoaning the demise of the Senate as an institution, once one, of the, once one of the great deliberative bodies on the face of the earth. Is it the case that a series of discrete individuals, 100 in number, have come to replace the institution? Is there any longer something called the Senate as an institution? Well, yes, I think there is. Uh, but I'm, I hearken back to the quote I, I mentioned a moment ago from Senator Mansfield. He was a real institutionalist. Uh, he believed that 
the Senate as an institution was, uh, as he said, a rock of the republic. And you think about your civics lesson and the, what the Constitution says about the Senate. The Senate is endow endowed with certain particular responsibilities uh, that are unique to the Senate as an institution. The senator's terms are six years, longer than any other federal office holder. Uh, the Senate has the responsibility to uh, pass judgment on treaties. The Senate has the responsibility to advise and consent on judicial appointments and appointments to other high positions in the federal government. So there's some particular institutional responsibilities that dissolve on the Senate, and the founders set it up that way. They, they purposely, in, uh, Mike was m mentioning before we sat down for lunch, the old, it may be an apocryphal story, supposedly George Washington, explaining the Constitution to Thomas Jefferson, said, Jefferson said, well, why did you have to create two houses of Congress? We don't need two houses of Congress, do we? And Washington explains to uh, Jefferson, who was out of the country at the time the Constitution was written, that it was a great uh, grand compromise to protect smaller population states. But, but Washington also says, think of the Senate when you have a cup of hot tea and you sometimes pour out a little tea into the saucer to cool it uh, before you're able to drink the tea. He said that's the role that the Senate should play in our system. It's the place where deliberation takes place, where things are slower. By nature, they're going to be slower. Take more time, presumably leading to better decisions. The House is going to be this raucous people's house where uh, elections are held every two years. Everybody runs every two years. The Senate has staggered terms. So yeah, there are some different institutional responsibilities that I think uh, devolve onto the Senate. And it requires uh, senators from both political parties to believe in that institutional responsibility. And I'm Thank afraid you. we've gotten away from that. So I'm not a believer that you need to remake a whole bunch of Senate rules. I think what both parties have done with the filibuster is, um, is diminishing to the Senate. Uh, I think the way the filibuster has routinely come to be used by both parties uh, is, is, frankly, is disgraceful. Uh, it shouldn't happen. It did not happen in, uh, in history up until uh, the post-1980 period, for the most part. We had filibusters, for sure, but um, Mansfield said famously in 1964 when Southern Democrats were filibustering the civil rights legislation, let them talk themselves to death. We'll get it passed, and they did. So there are ways to, to work around that. I do not believe, for example, uh, that the Senate, I, I do believe that the Senate will come to rue the day, both parties will come to rue the day, that they eliminated the check that an individual home state senator has on judicial appointments from their own state. Uh, that's a tradition that goes back to the beginning of the Republic and it's now been set aside. So some of these uh, institutional norms that make the Senate operate differently than the House, slower, more deliberative, uh, have been swept away. And that, I don't think, is good for the long term. Thank you very much. Uh, as you mentioned, these, these constitutionally identified institutional roles for the Senate, are you concerned that the Senate has abandoned its role in foreign affairs and war making, and under the leadership of Senator McConnell, largely uh, turned the Senate into a rubber stamp for President Trump's judicial nominees? I, I am concerned uh, across the board uh, about um, congressional oversight of the executive branch. 
And I believe that um, we have seen, frankly, in the post-World War II period, David's written a lot about this, we've talked about this uh, over a glass of uh, orange punch from time to time, <clears throat> that um, the Senate really does have, the, the Senate and the Congress writ large do have a responsibility for foreign policy. But we haven't declared a war since uh, December 8th, 1941. And although the United States has been involved in all kinds of military activities all over the globe, uh, I think uh, largely the Senate, but the Congress too, has uh, abrogated some responsibility, major responsibilities, in the making of foreign policy. Senator Wheeler, for example, never served on the Foreign Relations Committee while he was in the Senate, but he was a leading spokesman for an, a particular point of view in American foreign policy. And one of the things I give him credit for in the book, although I am personally quite critical of his positions vis-a-vis uh, -vis aid to Great Britain prior to uh, Pearl Harbor, uh, where he opposed that, he opposed Lend-Lease, the big plan, Roosevelt's big plan in 1941 to supply all kinds of military equipment to and other material uh, to allow uh, the United Kingdom to fight on against the Nazis. I'm critical of, of his position in that regard, but he did spark a sustained debate over the broad direction of American foreign policy. Frankly, the kind of debate we have not really had since that time. We certainly had a debate in the 1960s and 70, early 70s over the American role in Vietnam, but it was not a broad, sweeping debate about America's role in the world. And uh, we really haven't had that kind of debate since that great debate, as historians have dubbed it in 1941, about the broad direction of American foreign policy. So yeah, I think uh, the Congress really needs to step up. The Senate particularly needs to step up, exert its role as a co-equal branch of government and a co-equal voice on determining American foreign policy. I'm reminded of, by one, of one of the great iconoclasts in the history of the Senate, Wayne Morris from Oregon. Some of you may remember Morris from, he was, a, he was a Republican first, then he switched to the Democratic Party and finally wound up as an independent, so it's something about him. Uh, but he once uh, was on a television talk show, I've seen this clip before, and the reporter says, well, the, but Senator Morris, doesn't the president decide what foreign policy is? And Morris says, that's ridiculous. The American people decide what our foreign policy should be. We need to get back to the point, he said, where the American people exert influence over foreign policy. Or are we going to have these bases around the world? Are we going to have these military adventures that seem to go on without end? And, what, uh, what, and that's where the role of the Congress, I, I believe, needs to be reasserted and particularly important in the Senate. Thank you very much. And now we turn to the fun questions that you probably anticipated today. Is there a Democratic candidate in this field of 20 or so Democratic candidates seating the presidency that you think might, in fact, serve to reestablish bipartisanship in Washington? Oh, uh, boy. I don't even, I'm not even sure I could name all 20. I think it's 20 now with Biden entering the race just today. I, not sure I could name all 20 of them. Um, it re I guess I'll take a pass and say it remains to be seen. You know, our campaigns are so long and so grueling, and in one way that's good because it does uh, force candidates to be go through the crucible of being tested by fire. 
And we're going to see a lot of that in the next few months leading up to the real campaign that will begin early next year. Um, so it remains to be seen if there's somebody that can begin uh, to find the language and the policy that will start to address this great uh, partisan divide that seems to you know, be dividing the country. At the same time, I have a little bit of optimism that the United States is really not as divided as it, as it might seem. You look at some of the better polling from the Pew organization, for example, on some of the great issues that confront the country, immigration, uh, climate change, uh, foreign policy, um, education and infrastructure, just to name uh, four or five. There is a broad bipartisan consensus that we need to do some things that are you know, fairly obvious to most Americans, I think, about those issues. It's the polarized wings of the Republican and Democratic Party that make that increasingly difficult to get to those middle ground solutions that I think lots of Americans are willing to embrace. And again, one of the reasons I admire Congressman Simpson is he's been willing to stick his neck out a few times, uh, more than once, many times, to uh, try to bridge that, that great divide. And I think Mike finds, and I think others would find, that there's a lot of comfort in the middle if you can find a way to get there. Thank you. So let's return to that, that theme of bipartisanship. Uh, in 1974, uh, you'll recall that Republicans and Democrats came together to exert enough pressure uh, to persuade President Nixon to step aside, thus avoid an impeachment. Can you imagine a scenario in America today where we might witness uh, such bipartisanship uh, to perhaps uh, impeach and remove uh, this sitting president? I don't, uh, frankly, I don't believe impeachment is in the cards uh, because of the partisan divide. I do think it could be possible that there, I don't believe we're at the end of the story, so to speak, about uh, foreign interference in our election and the implications for the current incumbent in that scenario. So I think the pardon the pun, the jury is still out on that. But uh, I do think that um, a, what would be seen to too many Americans, Democrats and Republicans, as a purely partisan effort uh, to engage in impeachment for the sake of, you know, some political advantage perhaps, would be uh, really troublesome for the country. So I don't see that uh, happening. I don't think it's very likely. And I do think that... Uh, in order for the scenario that the question implies to come about, we're going to have to see some pretty striking revelations. You know, Richard Nixon uh, was not uh, imperiled, his presidency was not imperiled until the tapes were released, and it became demonstrable that he was involved and knowledgeable about the cover-up of the Watergate burglary and other nefarious things that his people had done in service to him, at least in their minds. So without that kind of... Uh, demonstrated evidence, I guess, then you're going to have trouble, I think, moving forward on that front. Mm -hmm. And you should have trouble moving forward on that front. Thank you. Impeaching a president is not a light, everyday thing to do. Right. Fact uh, is, we've never impeached a president. Uh, continuing to wear your, your hat as a... Never uh, convicted a president, I should say. Right. Thank you for the clarification. Continuing to wear your uh, hat as a political analyst, 
Uh, how concerned are you, if you're concerned at all, that neither the administration nor the Senate has engaged in any real effort to protect the United States from foreign intervention in the next political cycle as the Russians engaged in 2016? I'm concerned about it. Uh, if you take the trouble to read the Mueller report, um, which does not use the word collusion, by the way, in any of the 448 pages, uh, it presents a, in my mind, a shocking story about a foreign, a hostile foreign power meddling in our election in a variety of different and very pernicious ways. Now, did it influence the outcome of the election? I don't know. We may never know the answer to that question. But did they try to influence the outcome? I don't think there is any question that they tried to influence the outcome. So to the question, uh, it would seem to me the easiest bipartisan thing in the country to agree on that we don't want Vladimir Putin having a hand in an American presidential election. Um, we ought to get together, Democrats and Republicans, and find a way to address that issue so that we don't have to worry about uh, the sanctity of the voting booth in places like Bonneville County, Idaho, where somebody might be able to, you know, using technology, using whatever they might be able to conjure up, uh, interfere with the proper conduct of American elections. And the really damaging thing about it is that without a bipartisan consensus that it's a problem and we're trying to address it, then you sow uh, discord and uh, division and I think uh, dis disbelief about whether our elections really are fair and honestly conducted. You talk about a danger to democracy. If you do not believe that your vote is properly counted, uh, has been properly recorded, then you really are getting at the fundamental basis of what constitutes the legitimacy of a democratic system. Thank you. As our, as our time together uh, nears its end, let's, let's finish with this question, which I think is a fitting question for you, given your long and, and deep-running interest in politics. Do you believe that America is resilient enough to overcome the uh, changes or challenges to constitutional norms and democratic principles raised by President Trump? I hope so. Um, and I provide that caveat, I hope so. I uh, have many occasions to remember my old boss, uh, former Governor Cecil Andrus, and I remember uh, once, uh, not too long before his death, talking to him about this very thing. Are, you know, are we resilient enough to uh, work our way through what seems like a particularly rough patch? This is a guy who came of age during the Great Depression, you know, lived through World War II, uh, saw lots of political dis, uh, discomfort in, in the United States. And say what you will about C. Sanders, he was kind of an eternal optimist about things. And he says, he said to me, as I recall the story, we're talking on the phone, he says to me, we've been through, you know, some crazy times before. Uh, we'll find our way to get through it. It'll be ugly. Uh, there'll be some real dis discord along the way. But I think, you know, we'll be okay. So I take heart in that because he had the long view of things um, and he was an eternal optimist who fervently believed in the American experiment. And so I, I say yes, I think, I think so, I certainly hope so. Well, with those encouraging words, we want to say thank you so much for joining us today. It's wonderful to be with you today, thank to you. you. Thank you.
The Idaho Falls City Club presents an evening with Greg Carr on Monday, May 6th. Advanced ticket purchases are required by Friday, May 3rd. Go to ifcityclub.com for details.